Hey folks, you're listening to the free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. It's a great podcast, but you're missing out, folks. There's a lot more content, a lot more talk with Digby in this week's show. You'll hear the story of how pharmaceutical company took two medications readily available, combined them into something less than impressive, but extremely profitable. And we'll talk to the great Scott Lemieux about not only the healthcare postponement this week, but also what's going on with the Supreme Court. All that and more. But more importantly, you will help support independent media. We don't take money from corporations. We rely on you, our audience, to support this program. Radio industry is not what it used to be, folks. So we need your help. If you're listening to this show, head over to rofpodcast.com. Sign up to become a member for just a few pennies a week. You will support this program and keep it strong through the Donald Trump years and beyond. Thanks. Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on Ring of Fire, Heather Hulbert will join us to explain the devastating effects of President Trump's diplomatic strategy or lack thereof with our allies. ProPublica's Marshall Allen will join us to tell us how a recent trip to the doctor helped him uncover why Americans pay too much for health care. Scott Lemieux from the blog Lawyers, Guns and Money will be here to tell us why the Senate health care bill was delayed and we'll get an update on where we stand with Trump's Muslim ban. And Heather Digby Parton from Salon will be here to help me recap the biggest stories of the week. Hey, never want to miss a Ring of Fire radio show again? Go check out our podcast. You can go to rofpodcast.com and sign up. You can either get the free one-hour show or you can get the full show by becoming a member and supporting the show, keeping it on air. That's rofpodcast.com. Head over there right now and help support the program. Joining me now to help recap this week's biggest stories, Heather Parton from Salon, or you may know her, Digby. So, Digby, this week we saw the really the punting. And that's about as far as I'm willing to go uh, in terms of uh, taking the temperature of this uh, this essentially Obamacare replace and repeal bill. I think they call it the Better Care and Reconciliation Act. Uh, That's the one that's coming out of the Senate. And uh, just give me your your sense before we get into what we we can anticipate next from the republicans give me your sense of of what uh, of just analyze the fact that mcconnell had to punt i mean i i don't know i mean i i know this wasn't the plan but i'm not quite convinced that it was that far from the plan the original plan anyways yeah i mean well there's a lot there everybody's trying to read mitch mcconnell's mind here i think just before we get into what you know, what we think might have happened here. Let's just set aside something 
right now. McConnell is, you know, he is an effective majority leader of the Senate. He's been around a long time. He understands the Senate rules. I think he understands his caucus. And I think he uh, has a strong um, desire. I shouldn't even say desire. His, his, his raison d'etre is to retain control of the Senate in 2018 and beyond. Let's stipulate all of that. But he is not, you know, a wizard. He's not a genius, and he's not infallible. And this idea that somehow or another, if Mitch McConnell decided he wanted to get something done, there was no stopping him, and nothing could possibly do that. I mean, you know, there have been many great, um, you know, Republican leaders, or at least competent Republican leaders, that have gone down in flames, particularly in the last few years. I mean, look at John Boehner, because they could not get past the schisms that exist within the Republican Party at the moment. So I never believed that whether or not Mitch wanted it or had a master plan or whatever, that it was necessarily going to happen, because there are serious, serious problems in the Republican Party, the biggest one being the fact that they have a president with about a 35% approval rating who's in and a plan that I think it was revealed last week in USA Today in polling that it had a four, that the plan the Senate plan has a 14% approval rating so uh, nationwide so you know Mitch McConnell isn't a miracle worker he's not Jesus Christ so let's just set that aside having said that i my personal belief is contrary to what some people thought that maybe he'd planned to tank the bill and then tell Trump that gee he's sorry he tried and he couldn't get it done i do not think that's true i i think he really does well, it's definitely clear done. now, isn't it? I mean, if yeah, anybody thought no that his plan was to tank the bill, he would have just brought it to a vote and voted it down. That would have been, you know, easy. And it seems to me he and we should be clear here on what on, on, on where everything stood on the day that they punted and then subsequent to that. But on the day that they punted and said, we're not going to vote this week, this week being this past week. It, you had Susan Collins and Dean Heller in particular on one side, and maybe you could throw in like uh, Milkowski and Mary uh, Moore Caputo uh, on one side. And then you had on the other side, and, and Portman I would put on that side. And then on the other side, you had Rand Paul and uh, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee. So he could have said, like, look, I've upset the moderates, I've upset the conservatives, the so-called moderates, I should say, and the conservatives, I did my best, but there's no threading this needle. Uh, when you do, you lose. And so he could have definitely tanked this. Uh, so it's, it is quite clear that that theory was incorrect. Yeah, and I mean, come on, it, ne it never made sense because what he would have been doing if he brought the bill to a vote, he would have saddled all of his members with a vote for something that didn't pass and that was dramatically unpopular with people on both sides. I mean, right. you know, obviously anybody who voted for it, the people who, uh, you know, they would be ads run against them uh, from the left, from the center, from everybody about what they did. And then the right would be, you know, furious that the thing didn't pass and they'd be running people, you know, running ads and running primary challenges from the right. So, you know, there was no winning on that. It either passes or nobody wants to vote for it. I mean, I just don't think that that's really a reasonable expectation of of these Republicans. And clearly, it, they don't think it's a reasonable ex 
you know, expectation either. So, you know, so, so what I think that the plan, and I've sort of been convinced by people who have suggested, and I think this actually does make sense. I think we all thought that there was going to be a plan from the, from the you know, there was this horrific House plan, and then they were going to, quote, fix it in the Senate, and then, then good old Mitch would come up with some kind of a more moderate, maybe something a little less harsh, something that all the moderates in the House could vote for, and maybe they'd lose a couple of the hardcores on the right, Pence would step in, they'd get 51 votes, and then they could go to conference. And that's where the the real vote would be, where the real bill would be hashed out, and it would be something that would be somewhat acceptable to both sides, and then we'd all sing Kumbaya, and they'd pass the bill, and Donald Trump would stage a huge celebration. Um, Mitch is not doing that, and for good reason, because what he wanted to do, and his obviously his plan was to get this thing off the table as quickly as possible. And the way to do that was to put through a plan, sneak one through that was as close to the House plan as they could possibly get, pass it with one vote, and then have the House pass the Senate vote. And, and you know, I think that he and Ryan probably worked that out and completely, completely get rid of the, the, the conference altogether, where, you know, Things could go awry. That was as fast as they could do it. I think they wanted to get the Senate bill done. Then the minute they came back from uh, from the break here, the July 4th break, then the House would vote on it. You know, Ryan would twist arms. They'd get it done, and that would be that. I think that that's what Mitch and Ryan, Rich and, you know, McConnell and Ryan both assumed would be their most direct path to victory. And that didn't work, and it's not going to work. I don't think it's going to work. And, and even... If they had gotten to that, there have already been signs. The House Freedom Caucus already came out and said, hey, we're not voting for this Senate bill. It's way too, you know, generous. Um, we, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So, you know, this schism in the Republican Party, which we saw under John Boehner, which has been building and building and building for a long time. Paul Ryan is not popular on the right. You know, this is not something that's new even though they have a Republican president. And I think that maybe in some level people thought maybe Trump, the great negotiator, could step in and, you know, paper over all these differences because he was so great. Um, you know, think I, again. This guy I, may be the worst negotiator. Well, let's we got to take a break. we got a lot more to talk about in terms of this. In fact, um, and, and um, I have a slightly different theory about what has happened and what might happen in the future. Um, and... Uh, so basically, at the very least, we're on to plan B uh, in terms of Mitch McConnell. But there's also a plan C out there. And we're going to talk about both those when we return. In addition to the actual plan, which, uh, you know, of course, we had scored over the past week and uh, turns out to be a really horrible health care plan. We'll be right back after this. I'm a trial lawyer. I've spent countless hours pouring through documents that tell the story about the ugliest side of corporate America. Corporate media refuses to talk about these issues. The conduct by this company was deplorable. I'm going to paint a clear picture about how disturbing, how corrupt corporate conduct has become in modern America. These are stories that no one else can tell. I'm Mike Papantonio, host of America's Lawyer. Question more. Find out more at ringoffireradio.com. 
Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So Digby, when we broke, we were talking about the the necessity for Mitch McConnell to essentially punt. Originally, the stated plan by Mitch McConnell was to vote on the Better Care and Reconciliation Act. This is essentially the Obamacare repeal and replace. Uh, prior to this uh, July 4th uh, recess that uh, they now have all basically headed out on, and then hopefully pass it, then just send it over to the House. I got to think that Mitch McConnell, like anybody who's making plans, has a contingency uh, plan. You know, plan A may have been, let's pass this this week. But now what we've seen is Mitch McConnell has put the bill out there. It is a, um, by all accounts, really not a health care bill. It is really a tax cut uh, that also achieves the the top line of repealing Obamacare. And, and, and we know this because we see things like retroactive capital gains tax cuts. <laughs> like, what? That is, <laughs> no, there is no, there's no way to, it's, it's hard to justify that even in the context of a tax reform bill, never mind <laughs> a supposed health care bill. But uh, putting that aside for a moment, what Mitch McConnell has done, the bill is out there, and now you and I, and we should say that the deficit reduction under this bill is three hundred some odd billion dollars, which is a hundred, which is two hundred some odd billion dollars less than the House. So to get to parity of the House, which we know the Freedom Caucus people have already voted for, right? All he needs to do is deliver about a hundred billion dollars worth of deficit reduction. So he's got this two hundred billion dollars to play with. Now you and I can sit here without any personal knowledge of the people in the Senate. And you and I right now would know how we would spend, I don't know, $50 billion of that if we wanted to get votes. Because Susan Collins came out and said, I can't vote for this bill. What it does to rural hospitals in Maine is horrific. And Portman from Ohio is like, I can't vote for this bill. What it does for opioid addiction problems is horrific. And Shelley Moore Capito says a similar thing. Let's put Dean Heller to the side for a moment. Well, I mean, if I'm Mitch McConnell, I just basically have on my board, I need $10 billion for rural hospitals in Maine. I need $10 billion for uh, opioid uh, uh, treatment in uh, Ohio. And, uh, and maybe some of those rural hospitals and opioid addiction uh, treatment in West Virginia. And then he looks across the thing and he looks at Ted Cruz and he says, Ted Cruz, we're going to give him expanded health savings accounts. And uh, maybe we'll, uh, you know, choke off the subsidies at one point or, you know, cut some savings there. And now he's starting to get closer to the ballpark where, you know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who in the Republican Party, you you mentioned uh, earlier, Trump care, you know, polls at something like 14 percent. But repeal Obamacare is still probably around 35, 40 percent. And I will bet in those Republican uh, states and districts, it's even higher to show up in front of your voters and not having repeal, you know, repealed Obamacare, I think, is a scary prospect for these people. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think it is a very scary prospect for people. I mean, they ran on this for seven years. This was the holy grail uh, for them. On the other hand, 
you know, I also suspect <laughs> that there may be even there may be some awareness among Republican voters that there at least something sort of creeping in. Because if you look at these numbers, you know, the, the, the Senate health care bill being at, you know, like 17 percent approval, 14 percent, that includes Republicans. I mean, there, there are a lot of them in this country and that they are he is he is, the, the Republicans are not maintaining support for their plans among their own party. And and that's not because people are sitting around going, well, gee, if we can only have a little more money for that hospital out in rural, you know, Ohio or Maine, they're doing it because this overall idea that this is just, you know, this is a monstrosity of a bill and it's going to hurt millions and millions of people. I think that message is getting through. And I'm not quite sure how because these people are so isolated in their little information silos, but somehow or another it must be. And that, I think, is where... But remember... But remember, 17% approved of the House bill, and they passed it, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that they can't pass it, but I am saying that this is becoming a powerful thing. One of the things that the House had, and it was a big argument, particularly among the so-called moderates, who aren't actually moderates, they're all conservatives who only seem moderate in comparison to the right-wing freak show, um, they were all promised that the Senate was going to fix it. I mean, this right. was a, this was an... Oh, you know, an outright open promise that was made to a lot of them, which is just come on, we got to get this over the hump, then we'll get it in the Senate. They're gonna, they're the saucer that cools the tea, and they're gonna, you know, we can. They don't have the Freedom Caucus, you know, the huge number of Freedom Caucus people that they have to deal with. So let them do it. Mitch, Mitch will smooth all this over. I think that was a promise, and you know, the longer this draws out, the more this information about how awful this thing is starts to penetrate. And that's, I really believe that's one of the reasons why Mitch had to get this thing done. He had to get these people on the record voting before this July break, because I think they are desperately afraid of what, it, what they're going to be facing among their constituents. And they wanted to have it, you know, just sort of a done deal. I mean, I think the idea was is that they'd go in there, the, you know, they'd have a bunch of protests, and, oh, it's just a bunch of liberals, and, you know, they'd be able to discount it. The, the well, fact that it's still out there, I think, st- makes it... Those protests have more salience to these. these. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, their plan C in the next hour. But uh, I'm glad you uh, you 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 finished on that, because that reminds me to remind you folks, go out there and make sure your senators know that you don't like this bill uh, because the pressure needs to be kept on. It came back with the House. It could come back with the Senate. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in the next hour with more Digby talk about plan c as well as other things that happened this week when we come back foreign policy expert heather hurlbert will join us to discuss the bizarre approach the trump administration is taking with our allies i'm sam cedar we'll be right back after this Hey, folks, just a reminder, you're listening to the free 40-minute or so podcast of Ring of Fire Radio. But we do a lot more every week. In fact, we do three times the amount of content. You're missing interviews. You're missing more conversations about the news every week. But there's a good news. You can get more of it. And in fact, not only can you get more of it, 
but you can help support this program. Radio has bottomed out, ladies and gentlemen. So we're not supporting this show through horrible gold ads or whatever it is that they have on AM Talk Radio. We're supporting this show because listeners like you become members of the Ring of Fire podcast. You can go to rofpodcast.com and sign up today. And when you sign up, not only will you get three times the show that you're getting now, but you'll also make sure that we can stick around and support this program. Every now and then we give you content in addition to that three-hour show. But folks, uh, I know you're going to enjoy it, and I know you want to help us out. Go to rofpodcast.com right now. Thanks. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. President Trump's bizarre behavior when it comes to relations with our traditional allies is beginning to take a toll. According to a new Pew Research Center survey spanning 37 nations, a median of just 22 percent has confidence in Trump to do the right thing when it comes to international affairs. Here to explain why Trump's approach to foreign policy has strained our relationships overseas is Heather Hurlburt, director of the New Models of Policy Change Initiative, New America's Political Reform Program. So, Heather, we spoke several months ago in the lead up, I think, to the either just after Donald Trump had been inaugurated or at least into the lead up. And uh, we had talked about I mean, I think, you know, in, in conversations we had at that time, I, I, I really think I gained a better sense of uh, of of foreign relations, broadly speaking, frankly, and maybe it was just sort of contending with such a the potential for such a radical departure. Uh, but Donald Trump has fundamentally, it seems to me, already changed where America fits in the world. And that also seems to be something that has a lot more durability than we would want it to. I mean, it Explain. I mean, tell me if that's the case. That is absolutely the case, and we're seeing, you know, really just about every day and every week, kind of new, new data about this. The um, there was a, a, a an opinion poll out this week uh, from Pew that does global public opinion that um, views of the U.S. have declined in the last six months in every country they survey except two. Uh, no surprise that those two are Russia and Israel. But just, you know, comprehensively across the board, drops that I could see with my nearsighted eyes on my little tiny screen um, in how the rest of the world views the U.S. So that's kind of that's one data point. Now, you know, you can argue to a certain extent that's reversible. We've lived through, we've lived through ups and downs before. Um, you know, just today... The administration announced that it wants to send 4,000 more NATO troops to Afghanistan and that it really hopes that the Allies will contribute a large chunk of those. So what do they have committed so far? They have the U.K. committing 100 non-combat troops. Now, it's a long way from 100 to three or 4,000. So, you know, um, for the entire period, you know, since the, since the founding of NATO, um, and especially in the post-9-11 war on terror period, the, the U.S. has relied in a way that, frankly, a lot of Americans don't necessarily appreciate how much our allies have sent troops 
to fight and die alongside us in these wars that maybe maybe weren't our allies' fights but were our fights. And if we're now in a situation where you have an administration that wants to do just as much, if not more, fighting, that wants to ramp up in Afghanistan and ramp up in Iraq and ramp up in Syria and ramp up in Yemen, and the allies are saying, hey, no, we don't, we don't really want to go where you want to go. Um, that's a dramatic change in the U.S.'s role in the world that, that Americans – you know, Americans who've signed up to serve in the military and their families are going to feel. Um, another place we're seeing it, the U.S. is, um, you know, the, as you, your listeners probably know, the single biggest contributor to the United Nations, to United Nations peacekeeping. Um, Nikki Haley is going around bragging about how much money she has cut out of U.N. peacekeeping in her first six months, you know, bragging, again, out of funding that sends soldiers from other countries to go and end conflicts and save lives and police peace deals so that we don't send those troops ourselves. And, you know, so that there's no one who's going to, there's no one who's going to jump in and replace that. And my last point, just right off the bat, um, obviously, um, after the Bush administration's not so positive stances on climate change and not so strong willingness to get engaged, the you know, it really took all eight years of the Obama administration figuring out how to get the U.S. back in the game on a global climate deal and figuring out how to work around a, a recalcitrant Republican Congress to get, you know, to help get the Paris climate talks to a successful conclusion. And you now have, you know, have India and China sort of going around bragging, saying, you know, the U.S. isn't going to do what it promised. We're going to do more than we promised. And on the one hand, that's great. That's a net yeah. plus for the world. Um, if a future U.S. president comes back and wants to say, hey, guys, just kidding, we changed our mind. Here are some things we think we should be doing on the climate front. There's not, there's not necessarily going to be space for the U.S. anymore. People are going to look at us and say, yeah, you know, we kind of always had a feeling that, that you guys were, were really just out for yourselves, and, and you, you proved it with that Trump guy. So, so there's a way in which... All these leadership spaces that love them or hate them, we've taken advantage of for 50 years, are closing fast enough that you can see it happen. Okay, so there's there's two elements of what you're talking about, right? One is what the value of America is to America's leadership role in the world. The other is the durability of the message that Donald Trump and the election of Donald Trump sends to the rest of the world. Like, how reversible is this? So let's, I want to take these one at a time. Uh, and because there also uh, occurs to me that there's a, there's a, um, a third sort of category that I think we should touch on too, which is the danger of a sort of, um, of a former leader not being aware they're not a former leader anymore. And I don't know how to really articulate that, but let's, let me put a, a pin in that and just stay like, okay, so just on those things that you mentioned in terms of leadership, what if I don't want the U.S. to be as uh, military involved, militarily involved in the rest of the world? And so I see the lack of... Um, I mean, is there a benefit from my perspective, if I hold that position, to the idea that, oh, uh, you know, people aren't going to join us in our escapades in the same way. We may not be able to uh, 
uh, engage in these escapades in the same way. What do you say to that? Um, and because, you know, well, the peacekeeping and the climate change species. the wrong species. guy in the White House, if what right. you wanted was for the U.S. to be less militarily engaged. Right. Um, number two, there's not a lot of evidence that this administration, and I mean not just the president, but the people in leadership positions in the Pentagon, there's just not much evidence that they are basing their thinking on how militarily engaged the U.S. should be on um, whether NATO is willing to follow us or not. And I think the most worrisome part for someone who, who takes that point of view is to recognize that the alliance that President Trump has committed us to, which is this kind of Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, Egypt, um, and Israel as, as kind of a, an add-on to that in the Middle East, um, are very willing to use force, are very willing to put not so much their own troops, although there is some of that, but their own military equipment, which they buy from us, and their own dollars into supporting military adventurism. So, um, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of evidence that because, um, say, European democracies, Latin American democracies, and African democracies won't follow us, um, that's going to mean we have less ability to get ourselves into fights. And and I would add, you know, uh, the 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 qualifier democracy is pretty important there uh, because uh, I think there's there's ample evidence that uh, democracies are at the very least um, less willing uh, to engage in, um, in 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 more. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. You'd have a better sense, but are less willing to engage in more. Uh, I guess. Um, fanciful um, uh, military uh, conflicts. But all right, let's take a break. And, and when we come back, I want to talk about, A, if there's any sort of long-term economic uh, implications to this loss of leadership. I want to talk about that idea of, of, of durability. You know, uh, I think many of us in this country think, well, a lot of this stuff will be reversible and eventually will come to our senses. But uh, I would think if I'm come from a different country and I'm looking from the outside in, I don't see people who could come to their senses. I see people who are rather volatile. And then uh, lastly, what uh, what happens if we never regain that leadership position as a national, does our national psyche, is it capable of uh, accepting that? And, and what happens if we don't? We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Heather Hulbert. This is Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Folks, the Ring of Fire is sponsored by JustCoffee.coop. That's JustCoffee.coop. If you like fair trade, delicious coffee, tea, or chocolate, Head over to JustCoffee.coop, use the coupon code MAJORITY, and get 10% off. There's free shipping. You have no reason not to get this great coffee. It's a great outfit in Madison, Wisconsin, which supported the protests there. JustCoffee.coop. We're back on Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. Right now I'm talking with foreign policy expert Heather Hulbert about her piece in New York Magazine, The World Without America. 
So, Heather, when we broke, you were giving us a, a sense of uh, some data points as to um, how we can measure that we may have lost a, a leadership role in this country, uh, or I should say in the world. This country has lost a leadership role. And, and you were talking about some of the uh, potential scenarios, including support from our NATO allies, uh, support from peacekeeping uh, uh, forces uh, coming from the UN, and of course, a leadership position in climate change. Um, what, what are the uh, other implications of us losing our leadership status? I mean, what if I'm one of those people who say like, I mean, put aside for a moment, um, implications that it has for our national psyche. But what if I say, like, you know, maybe uh, American leadership is not necessarily the best thing uh, to have at this point. What, what do you come back to me and say, aside from the fact that we can't get other people to sort of join with us? I mean, that's just more like alienating your allies. Uh, but what, what are the costs to me uh, as someone who is a little bit skeptical of, of America's role in America, I mean, in the world, uh, to America not being necessarily in a leadership position? Well, you asked about economic impacts. And, you know, one of the things that we're already seeing is just a cratering in international tourism to the U.S. And that makes a lot of sense to me. You're not sure you can get in the country. You read stories about, you know, professors being detained and held in solitary confinement and sent back home and not allowed to go to conferences and, Muslims getting assaulted on public transportation, and why would you come here as a tourist? So, so the image of ourselves and of our feelings about people from other countries that we're putting out to the rest of the world is, is already having you know, a concrete cost to the lives of Americans who make their living and support their communities in, in travel and tourism. Um, we're also you know, sort of undergoing a giant experiment on um, brand America, and we don't, we don't know, you know, basically the entire American global business base, it's been built up in a, in a period where sort of the U.S. brand was one of omnipresence and U.S. global leadership. We don't have a planet B where the U.S. was kind of a quiet middling power and we see what our, what our economy looks like under the right. circumstances. So we're running, you know, we're running an uncontrolled experiment with, with our economy, basically. So those are, those are two other enormous consequences. And so how durable is the damage that Trump has done and will do going forward? I mean, how much of the the sort of the world order that we have now is like you know the i guess the the analogy is like a you know a, a massive ship that uh, turns very slowly how much of it is is that a how quickly can it turn and b how hard is it to return back to you know to revert to what has been the mean for the past 75 years well first you know Let's be clear that all the changes in the global order in recent years are not due to Donald Trump. And we have been living through a period where, you know, it's not popular to say, but there have been both absolute and relative shifts in power. And so, you know, the, the position that the U.S. enjoyed in the 60s, say, or the 80s, or the years right after the Cold War ended, that's not coming back anytime soon. And that wouldn't be that would be the case no matter who was president. So that's not a popular thing to say, but it's a true thing to say. Um, so so we were in this period of adjustment of frankly figuring out 
you know, economically, politically, security-wise, and kind of culture and psyche-wise, as you referenced to, what is it like for the U.S. to be at the top with a bunch of emerging near-peer competitors as opposed to astride a world with no near-peer competitors? So that's, that's the challenge that our society was facing anyway. And as you implied, um, we don't really know how to deal with that. If you look at the history of, say, Britain, France, Imperial Russia, um, Imperial China, you know, eventually societies pull out of it, but they tend to go through a long and ugly period of decline and funk. Um, so I worry a lot about that. But, you know, the other piece that I think is, is important to slide in there is that um, other countries are not going to sit around and wait and say, oh, you know, those Americans, we'll just give them eight years and see who they elect next and, and you know, whether that person can kind of get the society's act together better, you know. India is looking around and saying, okay, where do we need to have a security presence if the U.S. isn't going to have one? And they're not going to say, oh, you know, um, thank you, President George Clooney. You can take over this now. We don't need to do it anymore now that you're back. Right. Um, you know, the Saudis are not going to say, oh, hey, you know, we have been beating up Yemen because we didn't think you guys would take care of it. But now, you know what, we, we decided we're not really that worried about Yemen. You guys can, can sort of figure out what you think would be smart. Um, the, the places where other countries emerge as regional powers, other arrangements emerge, other groups of countries get used to talking to each other and settling matters without us being there, you know, that they're not, they're not going to sort of bow and say, here, we'd like to hand this back to you. So the, the question of, of not so much reversibility, but what is the new, what is the new that comes after this period of, of destruction is going to depend on um, the next generation of, of American leaders being able to be really flexible and creative and identify what are new roles for for America in in you know a post unilateral moment and that you know whatever we are right now as a as a society at the macro level I'm not sure we're super flexible right and and, and just to to just sort of um, tease out that that point about let's say you, you you mentioned India you know finding a new sort of like security regime for themselves I mean it it I mean, one thing I remember during the Bush administration is that the Bush, the Bush administration did not function in regards to Israel as, as past administrations had in being a, um, a leverage point against the, Israel's um, l less helpful inclinations. And it seems to me in the past, American administrations were uh, a, basically a, a fig leaf for um, uh, Israeli administrations to prevent them from, from engaging in too much military excess uh, because they could say, well, the America is holding us back. They're an important ally and they, they have some measure of control and it would protect them and insulate them from domestic pressures. Do, that type of dynamic, when the U.S. is able to do things for like, let's say in India, India in regards to Pakistan, that if India itself does, May be may make the situation more volatile. Is that the type of danger that we're 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 sort of uh, going into the mix? And we just got a minute left. Yes, I would worry about that with respect to India and Pakistan. I'd worry about it again with respect to Israel Palestine. I worry about it in the Middle East. Um, you know, at some point, I might worry about it in, frankly, um, as the situation in Venezuela uh, disintegrates further. And like that, you've seen just as a last comment where where the Secretary of State. Has, has emerged from his Batcave and tried 
to mediate and play a constructive role in the in the dispute between the Saudis and the Gutteries, and the White House has kind of pushed him back. So I, I think mm. that's a big worry. Yeah, indeed. Well, I think um, I'm afraid it, it's not necessarily going to get better uh, from here in the short term, and uh, we don't have time to talk about what we can do about it. Uh, I'm not sure that there is much we can do about it until we get to... Uh, 2018. But uh, Heather Hulbert, thank you so much for your time today. We will we will talk again soon. Well, always a pleasure. Heather Hulbert is the director of the New Models Policy Change Initiative at New America's Political Reform Program. You can read her piece, The World Without America, over at NewYorkMag.com. When we come back, Heather Digby Parton will be back to talk about some of the big news stories from the past week. If you're listening to this show on the radio and you miss any part of Ring of Fire Radio, you can sign up for our podcast at rofpodcast.com. It's a great way to support the show and the perfect way to never miss any of our segments. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio.